Well, thank you for joining this episode of The Freed Thinker uh, here on YouTube. Uh, we are uh, normally dealing with apologetics and dealing with naturalism, atheism, but sometimes there's an opportunity for uh, a debate where video just makes more sense. Uh, and this is just uh, one of those occasions. Uh, so today I am joined uh, by Dan Chapa. Um, uh, so Dan, thank you for joining us. Uh, why don't you start off by telling me a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to uh, discussing uh, libertarian free will and determinism with you. Um, so I'm Dan Chapa. Um, I'm a Southern Baptist. God saved me when I was really young. Um, so I've grown up in uh, church and that sort of thing. And I was in the Iwana program, so I was memorizing Bible verses and I just kept kind of going with it and just couldn't get enough of God's word. Um, so that's why I really have been enjoying studying theology and and that sort of thing. I have taken some Greek classes, and but I don't have a um, uh, like a, a formal degree in theology or that um, that sort of thing. But um, right now, I have a channel uh, with Turton Fan, and mm -hmm. it's called Conversations in Calvinism. It's usually exegetical. We go passage by passage, discussing various topics. Um, often we're focused on Calvinism, but we also um, sometimes get into open theism or Roman Catholicism or various subjects and things like that. But I just uh, love diving deep into God's word. Fantastic. Uh, and, and for, for those uh, from, from my channel, uh, if you're, if you're not familiar um, with, with uh, conversations of Calvinism, uh, it's, it's really, it's really fantastic. Dan, Dan like to, to your credit, just so you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm so excited for this conversation. I think you are, uh, I, I think you're brilliant. Uh, I think you uh, you really add a lot to these conversations, um, not just in in content, but in in tone and tenor. Um, I, I I think that uh, I, I don't think that I've seen a bad discussion with you um, on on almost any topic. So um, for those uh, who want to go check out Dan's uh, content, uh, you know, even even if you just search him on YouTube for all the guest appearances he's made and all of that, uh, it's it, it'd be it'll be a huge blessing for for anyone that 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 hunts you down online. So. Um, thank you for for all of your work. We appreciate it. Oh, that's that's very kind. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, I'll I'll make sure to put a link in in the show notes below as well. So uh, today we are going to be uh, uh, continuing. Maybe this is the first part you've seen. Maybe this is the second part you've seen. Uh, but we are going to be. Um, doing something a little bit different. We are having a debate here on uh, is libertarian the best and most biblical uh, view of freedom. Um, we're doing this a little bit differently. So uh, we uh, are doing uh, Dan's opening in the affirmative, um, about a 20 minute opening, and then about 40 minutes of me uh, grilling him in the hot seat. Uh, and that is posted uh, or will be posted on, uh, on his show. We're going to do my 20 minute opening uh, from the negative position, uh, and then Dan gets to cross-examine me for about 40 minutes. Uh, once that's all posted, we're going to let that kind of live out in the wild for about a week, let people view those, come up with questions, yell at their screens, calm down, take a breath, uh, get the, you know, come back. Uh, and then uh, my friend um, uh, Eli Ayala from uh, Revealed Apologetics is going to have us both on um, to kind of do the the more like impromptu discussion. Uh, he's going to start, you know, kick it off with some questions, and then that will be actually where the audience uh, Q and A comes in. So there's going to be a little cross pollination uh, on here, and I think uh, you know I'm really excited about it because um, I think it's really going to give it gave me an opportunity to cross examine you in a little bit more of a detailed way, and I think hopefully this will give you an opportunity to cross examine me in a little bit more uh, of uh, of a specific way. Um, and then we'll we'll get to, to Q&A afterwards. So um, so that's going to be the format. Uh, before we get started, Dan, you asked me a great question. I'm going to ask you the same thing. Why uh, why this conversation? Why spend so much time um, researching and thinking and discussing uh, uh, the nature of freedom and libertarian freedom and determinism and all of that that goes into there? You know, I think my journey started when um, a friend of mine in high school just pointed me to Romans 9, and I couldn't come up with an explanation for it other than Calvinism, and I kind of became a Calvinist just because I didn't have a better exegetical option. I just couldn't couldn't see the passage in another way. But the problem was I hadn't spent enough time in God's Word, right? I didn't know all the background and the context of all the Old Testament texts, and I think that is just fundamentally important. And then later on in, in life, um, I was just having my devotions, and I came across the warning passage in Hebrews 10, and um, I, I 
you know, none of my preachers in my pastor's churches had ever talked about these warning passages. And so I was just sitting there shocked. So I think it is important for us as Christians to know what's in our scriptures, to know that foundation and, um, you know, and, and think through the issues that, that might challenge us because otherwise they can, you know, kind of take us by, by, uh, by surprise and we can get, uh, you know, blown about by every wind of doctrine, I said, uh, so to speak. Um, so even though it's not, I, I consider, you know, Calvinists, I consider Tyler, you know, brothers in Christ, and, and we hold to the same essentials of the faith, you know, the Trinity, the resurrection, you know, those, those uh, central things about who Jesus is. We hold all these things in common, and uh, but it, it's still important because um, if Tyler challenges me tonight to go read my Bible and to dig in deep, then it's so worth it for me. And that's what I really enjoy about conversations like that, because um, I need to uh, be spending that time in God's word and wrestling with it and going to God on my knees and asking him, well, what does this mean, Lord? So um, that's that's what it uh, means to me, I suppose. Awesome. Thank you for that. I I, I, uh, I greatly appreciate that. I think uh, uh, your mention of Hebrews is is very interesting. I've actually uh, I, I've I've argued other places that uh, the Baptists should be Arminians <laughs> because I, I I think uh, the conjunction of of Calvinism and baptism when you come to pastors like that are is is it, it, it's hard. Uh, whereas Presbyterian Covenantalism I think uh, provides a solution. Uh, anyways, totally aside. Um, but that but that that again goes to this issue of these issues matter. They touch on so many different areas and it kind of has it kind of has its fingers in all the different theological pots and so it's it, it's a very it's a very robust conversation very rewarding but also very important so thank you for that um all right so um the format of this is i'm going to be giving my uh my opening uh, it's a uh, i'm going to try to keep it to uh to under 20 minutes um uh, i i have a i have a timer i don't know if you want to time me or i can run a timer sure I mean, yeah i'm obviously not strict about that but yeah i'll, I'll keep time to 20-ish, you know, I, I, I like to be uh, pretty close, not take advantage of it. Um, <clears throat> so uh, not the people who go a little over the, the, no, I mean, but um, okay. So uh, I will, uh, I'll start uh, with the opening statement. So in this debate, one must remember that Dan has the unenviable position of affirming the proposition that libertarian freedom is both the best philosophical position and the most biblical understanding of human freedom. This means that Dan will need to present reasons and evidence to believe not just that his view is possible or consistent with reason in the biblical text, but is more likely than not the best and most biblical view, and he must be able to do so by giving us independent reasons to believe so. That is, reasons that do not require one to already agree with an incompatibilistic understanding of freedom, which I'll discuss shortly. In addition, he must demonstrate his case from sound exegesis of the biblical passages he refers us to by using hermeneutics consistent with how he would handle any other theological topic and its support from the scriptures. He must not employ hermeneutics that we would not employ elsewhere, or he would not permit me to use without heavy objections. I'll leave it to you to judge if he's met that burden in his opening statement and his answers during the cross-examination on his channel. So. What's my role in the debate? I have the responsibility of taking the negative position. And since I am the negative advocate, it needs to be remembered that I do not bear the burden of proof of my own view, that of theistic determinism specifically, or of compatibilism more broadly. I merely need to demonstrate that liber the libertarian conception of freedom is not only not the best philosophically, but primarily runs counter to the biblical view of freedom. I will now turn to the main body of my opening where I'll first define and explain what libertarian freedom is in the literature and then provide various examples of biblical and theological defeaters for the view. And in doing so, I believe that I'll have accomplished my job as the negative position. So what is libertarian freedom? First, when we're talking about free will, it's helpful to define what free will is, not what view of free will is true, but what kind of thing are we talking about? In the philosophy of action, where within which free will discussions occur, free will is what's called the control condition that is necessary for personal responsibility, be it moral or rational. That is, what kind or to what extent of control over our actions or beliefs and the causes of our actions or choices is necessary for me to be praise or blameworthy or to accrue any kind of responsibility for them. 
there are numerous conditions that we can discuss. For example, there's epistemic conditions for responsibility, which says that I must know or be in a position to know or should know certain things in order to be responsible. So free will is specifically the control condition. So we must remember that whatever view of freedom one advances, they're speaking only of what is necessary for a minimum control condition to maintain responsibility but that that alone isn't actually going to be sufficient to robustly explain responsibility, and that's okay. Next, let's define specifically libertarian freedom, since there have been many definitions given in the literature, but they all seem to boil down to two necessary components, that incompatibilism is true, and that humans are sometimes free and therefore responsible. That is, that there is a principled incompatibility between some action being determined and that act being free, necessary for responsibility, and at the same time, that some humans are sometimes responsible and thus sometimes free in an undetermined way. Christopher Franklin, in his book, A Minimal Libertarianism, put out by Oxford University Press, says that libertarian is, quote, that free will and moral responsibility are incompatible with determinism, and yet, nevertheless, many humans are free with respect to and morally responsible for many of their actions, end quote. Uh, our friend Tim Stratton defined it this way on his website, libertarianism can be most simply defined as the conjunction of a rejection of compatibilism along with the claim that humans, at least occasionally, possess free will, end quote. Later, he refines this in his book, Mere Molinism, as, quote, the view that, one, that free will is incompatible with determinism, and two, that some of our actions are free, end quote. Now, I would like to say one more thing that's true of every principled position, not just incompatibilism, and that is that such positions are incredibly fragile. Why? Well, due to the fact that they affirm a necessarily absolute principle as a defining feature, then a single exception to that principle serves to falsify the entire position. Imagine I said that there's in principle a contradiction or an impossibility between something being a sphere and something being green. What would it take for someone to falsify that kind of sphere color incompatibilism? Well, I would only need to show some way that a sphere could be compatible with being green or I could just provide an example of a green ball. So too with incompatibilism. It starts with the assumption that if something is determined, then in principle, it cannot in no sense and in no way ever be a free action necessary for responsibility. So what must a skeptic or an opponent of incompatibilism like myself do to falsify the view? Well, we could demonstrate one way that it's even conceptually possible for some kind of act to be both determined and, and the agent uh, be thought responsible or give an example of such. This kind of one and done falsifiability of principled positions just leaves them exposed to the ravages of academic rigor and more often than not, they don't come back alive from the front lines. That is the case with incompatibilism. And here, I'm now gonna to turn to giving such examples from the Bible and from broader theological considerations to show that Christians, at least those like Dan and myself and others who desire to maintain Christian orthodoxy and be biblical above all else, should reject incompatibilism, especially of the libertarian variety. Now, while I only need one single contrary example where something is determined by God and yet the agent is seen as responsible in order to falsify not just libertarianism, but any incompatibilist concept of freedom as a whole category, I'm going to actually go beyond this in anticipation of a common objection brought about by many incompatibilists. So I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. They seem to think that if God weakly determines or even causally determines something that is sin, that not only would this justify the humans as being not responsible or innocent, but also would somehow make God less than righteous, holy, and just. Now, there are countless examples where God determines actions and we think are free, but I'm going to give examples where God not only determined, intended, foreordained, or caused a responsible action, but where that responsible action was actually sinful or even directly contrary to an explicit command of God given directly to the person. So first, uh, there's the cross. In Acts 2, 22 and following, Peter preaches the following sermon, quote, 
Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predeterminate plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, end quote. Here we see that it is by the horismene boule, the determinate plan of God, and by his foreknowledge, that they nailed Jesus to the cross. Notice that it's by the determinate plan, that, that it was the blueprint, it was the script by which it happened, that they nailed Jesus to the cross. These terms mean to ordain, to determine, to decree, and that it was his plan or his purpose or his will. So this is his decreed over, or his determined or, or his ordaining will or plan. So does God desire or will or plan evil? Well, in this passage, we're given a resounding yes. And is this God merely passively reacting to what uh, Herod and, and Pilate and the Jews were choosing to, to, to do and trying to incorporate their autonomous actions into his plan and make it work out? No. Peter actually tells us what it is. He expounds on this later after being released from prison in Acts 4.27 and following when he prays to God and says, quote, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your boule, same words it is in Acts 2, your purpose predestined, praorizod, to occur. And now, and, and that the root word orizo is the same as the, the determinative plan previously. So continue on. And now, Lord, look at your look at the threats and grant to your bondservants to speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servants, uh, Jesus, end quote. Notice that it's by God's hand and his purpose. This ties directly to the comments in Acts 2. It uses the same uh, words. It's by God's determinate or ordaining boule, his plan, and it's the same orizo, except in this case, it's actually intensified. It's pra-orizo. It's, it's determined beforehand. Here, Peter intensifies it and actually says that it's not just the plan. Remember, grammatically, it's that they were, they what is predestined is not the plan that was predestined, it's that they do what was predestined. Their actions is actually what his hand predestined to occur. It's not the plan was what his hand predestined to occur. You have to get the grammar right. Now, God's hand in this case is active causality. God's hand is always an intentional exertion of power by God in the scriptures to bring about an action. This just is to say that God acted to predestine what they do to occur. In this very passage, we see this. What, what does God's hand do in verse 29? It causes the healings and the signs and the wonders to take place. So there, there's, there's a symmetry. The, the, the non-Calvinists, the non-determinists, and the incompatibles would have to say that in one sense, the hand is this passive plan thing. It's not actually in a causal source, but in the second one, his hand is active in causing the healing, right? They need some type of symmetry breaker that's not ad hoc. Now, or they would have to say neither of them are him being active, which is also a, a strange position to be in. Now ask yourself, if God is acting directly to causally bring about something, can he be prevented from accomplishing that person's purpose? And Peter continues. Notice that Peter appealed for God to grant them to be bold. That is to change their heart, to change their affections, their desires, their internal intentions with the outcome of being brave, choosing to be courageous. Now, do we look at Peter and John and, and admire them for being courageous in the face of the Sanhedrin and the persecution they're experiencing? Of course. But if incompatibilism is true and God answered their prayers and, and caused them to be, to be brave, which is what he was praying for, then their bravery was mere puppetry by God. They weren't brave. God was brave for them if the incompatibilist is right, but not if the compatibilist is right. Now, surely Pilate and the Jews were guilty of their sin also. The crucifixion, we have to remember, is the most abjectly evil and horrendous sin ever committed. The fact that in these discussions, now Dan didn't, thankfully, but many incompatibilists will say things like, oh, does your God determine child rape and murder and sex trafficking? because that's emotionally charged rhetoric. 
but it shows that they haven't really considered the weightiness of the cross and what happened. The cross is deicide, the state-sponsored conspiratorial murder of the second person of the divine holy trinity, the, the, the only truly innocent human, the son of God in the incarnation. It's infinitely more despicable than the most worst, terrible sin any human has ever committed against another human. And so we can ask, does your God determine the infinitely most wretched human action ever committed? And Peter's response is absolutely, by his own hand and decree. Next, we can look at God and Pharaoh. In the Exodus cycle, in, it, it, sorry, in the Egypt cycle in Exodus, we're told repeatedly that God will or does harden the heart of Pharaoh. But in Exodus 7, we can see a prime example. Now, for the sake of argument, it doesn't actually matter who hardens their heart first. I know this is a big argument, but here I'm actually going to be assuming the incompatibilist view. And so this is an internal critique. Now, I think it's clear that God actually hardens it first, since in 421, Yahweh says he'll harden his heart, and then he says he'll harden again in 7.3 in response, and then the next uh, hardenings that actually occur, the only ones, that first ones that occur in 7.13 and 7.22 are in the passive voice, and so Pharaoh is viewed as the subject of the hardening, not the agent, and we don't actually get a statement that he hardened his own heart until 8.15, and if we think of God's hardening as some kind of passive thing where we're just, he just kind of lets Pharaoh harden his own heart, then it makes it inexplicable why some verses say God hardened it and other verses say uh, that he was passive and then others say that Pharaoh hardened his heart because those just become meaningless distinctions since they are in fact the same thing. But even if Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and we stipulate that, and so God's hardening is therefore retributive or judicial hardening, doesn't matter the argument. Why? Because we're told expressly that God gave Pharaoh the command to let the people go in chapter 7. Then God will harden his heart so that, that is the, 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 the cause of the outcome, so Pharaoh will not let the people go. Why? So that God can judge him and display his wonders. So even if Pharaoh hardened his heart first in another context, in this context, we know that God gave him a command to let the people go, then caused him to not be able to keep that command, and yet still acted then in judgment upon him for not keeping that specific command in Exodus 7. But we can make the case even stronger. Let's assume that this is something like drunk driving and where maybe Pharaoh hardened his own heart and then God hardened him judicially, kind of like getting drunk so that you couldn't properly control your vehicle and you kill someone, you're still responsible for the deaths, even though you could not choose otherwise because you made the choice to drink that much and drive in the first place. Now, here the problem is that God would have then given him a command knowing that Pharaoh couldn't have kept it because he had already hardened his heart. Again, assuming this for the sake of argument, it, it's nowhere in the text, but I'm going to assume the incompatibilist reading. So God would then be commanding what he knew Pharaoh could not do, expecting him to be responsible to keep it. But then he still hardened him to really not be able to do the thing that he apparently already couldn't do. In fact, None of this is even reactionary. Paul tells us in Romans 9 that this was the very purpose, the reason why God raised up Pharaoh to the position of power in the first place. Finally, imagine that you ran, you were driving and you ran a red light. Then you found out that because you already transgressed the law earlier, that the government then causally determined you and forced you against your will to rob a liquor store. Then they judge you for both crimes. And then you realize that somehow they put you in that position uh, in that context so that you would freely choose to run the red light so that they could harden you so that they could judge you for both crimes. Now, would you really think that their justification that you broke the law first, even though they put you in that context and they put you there for the purpose of breaking that law first so they could further harden you and make you commit crimes further, does that justify the later force and adjustment? I doubt that you would accept that, but that's just exactly what the incompatibilist reading would require us to do in this scripture. Next, we can think of 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, uh, which reads, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in the wicked. Uh, briefly, just notice here that God is active. He's causally bringing about the delusion of the wicked who perish by using the secondary means of deluding spirits or influences with the intended outcome that they will believe what, something else that's false. 
Why does he do that? In order that they may be further judged. That is, he takes the wicked, then causes them to believe more false things so that he can increase the judgment upon them to include those delusions. Here, we have a direct repudiation of the incompatibilist principle that we cannot be judged if God causally determined our actions. Now, I have more to go through. Uh, for example, Joseph and his brothers or Revelation 17, 17, where God puts, literally we're told he puts evil intentions in the hearts of the kings to hand their kingdom over to the beast. You could think of 1 Corinthians 12, 15, where we're told Rehoboam uh, didn't listen to the counsel of the wise, but listened to the poor counsel of his friends because it was brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. We could go on and on and on. 1 Samuel uh, second, uh, 2, 25, uh, where we're told that the sons don't listen to Eli's rebuke, quote, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's the causal explanation gives and on and on. But I want to get to, uh, I'm not going to have time for both the theological arguments that I give, but I want to get to one of them. Uh, this may, uh, I'll try to get it in time. So first, the, 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 the argument that I want to give is an argument from inspiration. Now, Dan and I both affirm verbal plenary inspiration. The understanding uh, uh, that, that God has inspired every jot and tittle, every word and syntactical construction in the original text of the biblical authors. But that that's not done by some type of mystical dictation, that they're in a trance, that circumvents the agency of the human author, nor is it some type of aesthetic inspiration like Shakespeare being struck by a sunset or writing a poem about it. Now, I take it then that Dan and I would both agree that God has, properly speaking, determined the content of his own word such that we can properly call each and every word contained in the scriptures God's word. It's it, it, it's attributable to God in a way that, say, the words of Tolstoy's War and Peace are not. Even though, even given Molinism, God predestined every word of war and peace by his eternal creational decree uh, and, and his middle knowledge, God was causally active in a different way and not merely predestining the words of scripture, but in producing the actual content. And yet we can look at to people like Moses or Paul or Matthew or any other biblical authors and praise them for their literary, rhetorical, and theological genius. Or we can see first-person statements of Paul where he says things like, I say, not the Lord, or the Lord, not I, and understand Paul speaking truly from the first person. And yet, these are also, properly speaking, the very words of God that he determined. However, if incompatibilism is true, sorry, I mean, one, like two more sentences. However, if incompatibilism is true, this seems to be impossible. For if God determined the words that they wrote, then, in any sense, they couldn't be free. But then they'd be nothing more than hypnotized meat puppets or flesh robots forced to write what they did, no more praiseworthy than the factory machine that stamps out the latest best-selling novel. Now, notice that this argument doesn't prove incompatibilism is false, but it does show that there's a very high price to pay if you want to affirm it, either giving up verbal plenary inspiration or uh, ad ad admitting that they were not free uh, and praiseworthy and they were, you know, hypnotized meat puppets or flesh robots. So uh, with that, uh, I did have one more argument, but I, I don't think we'll get to it. Um, I, I think that I've shown um, that incompatibilism as a principled position is too fragile and it's easily broken by simple examples from biblical facts and theological reflection. Thank you so much. Thank you for that uh, speech. That was uh, really excellent. I appreciate it. Um, Thank you. So I take it there was three, uh, three main points to address here. So there's the cross, um, hardening, and then inspiration. So um, let's start with the middle one first, uh, the hardening of hearts. Um, so do you uh, at least grant for the sake of argument that there's a possibility that this is a sort of judicial hardening, a punishment for past sins? And is that where your drunk driving example kind of came in? Um, so, so I, so I don't have a problem with judicial hardening, right? Because I I think that that even on a determinist 16, God can sovereignly decree that for some outcome, the means by which something outcome is a is a judicial hardening. So so I don't have a problem saying it's a judicial hardening, and 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 that's why I said in the argument, even if I grant any incompatibilist reading of this judicial hardening, he heard it first, its response, whatever it is, all of that's inconsequential to the actual argument that's being made that. Uh, that God is causing Pharaoh to not keep a specific command that he gave and then judging him 
for not keeping that specific command, even though God had done something to cause him to not be able to keep that command. Okay. Um, in the sense in which God uh, causes Pharaoh to not keep his command, are you also okay with that's a um, sort of a, a, sub a subtraction of God's influence and grace, maybe even in your terms, it might be common grace, but, you know, some type of removal of grace rather than a positive. In other words, do you do you take issue with the, the idea that God took a good person and caused him to do evil, right? Like Pharaoh wasn't a good person. He just kind of let Pharaoh's evil run, run its course. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I think that one of the one of the things that God does when when evil happens is he he simply withdraws his 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 preserving uh, his preserving grace, his common grace, right? So, uh, I mean, this goes back to the idea that uh, you know, uh, sin, sin really is like gravity on on a totally depraved nature, right? So, so God doesn't need to God doesn't need to do anything. It, it, it's not equally ultimate if I can use that language. Uh, for God to determine some evil thing to happen in the same way that God uh, would have to determine, say, salvation or something good, right? God, God doesn't have to be. Um, it, it, it can be. It can be a withdrawing of, of grace to cause it, but it's still a cause, right? I, I can. I can. Uh, I can. I can withdraw air from a room, and that effectively causes the cooling of the room. Yeah, I got you. So, um, and just one more. The broad question on hardening, I suppose, would be um, that it would be totally different context than if we, especially if we grant judicial hardening, it wouldn't apply to a situation like, let's say, the Garden of Eden right before the fall. You know, if 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 uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be appropriate to, for Adam to be hardened, and that's the reason why he uh, falls into sin, right? Like, because that that would be a punishment for some pre previous, and there was no previous sin. Yeah, that's right. I, I I don't think I don't think uh, that that Adam was was hardened to sin. Okay. So now let's. So there's something specific you said about hardening here. I have a note. It's um, you know that that, that uh, there's a command um, that uh, Pharaoh violates afterwards, and there's there's definitely a sense in which I agree with that. But I just want to clarify one point. So this isn't like a new command, right? The the command was issued right from the get go of. Pharaoh, let my people go. So I think, would you be okay with the um, nuance of, you know, that that obligation was there for, for, for Pharaoh, you know, before at least the, the uh, hardenings take place. And it's rather just God doesn't retract his command once the hardening starts happening. But he still um, holds them accountable afterwards. Or do you think he actually yeah. imposes a new command after the hardening? Yeah. I, I think it's a new command. I mean, you know, um, to use covenant language, it's a it's a it's a it's a new administration of a <laughs> of a same demand, right? So, uh, you know, I can I can think of it in 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 terms of uh, of my kids, right? So if I if I tell my kids, you know, pick up your toys, right? They don't do it. We wait some time. We get some. And I go, hey, pick up your toys, right? In one sense, they've been obliged to 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 all the commands. In another sense, I have reissued a command. That that you know maybe maybe they you know I give both commands uh, you know they don't comply the first time so I take away a toy and I reissue the command right they they are they are they are while while it's the same command they're still severally obligated to each one of the commands right so so I don't take it that that this is just um that this is you know just just a hearkening back to the original can I I think that 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 Pharaoh failing to let the Israelites go at each of the commands is increasing his culpability because he has a culpability to each one of these commands. And I think that's the thrust of the narrative, right? This is this is getting worse and worse and like it's snowballing. Uh, Pharaoh is becoming more and more culpable as this goes. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, we may have a slight differences of, of opinion there, but that's okay. Um, I mean, I, I would take it as more just representation, but anyways, let's get to, I guess, the uh, the big point, the, which is the, you know, so let's, let's say for the sake of discussion, I actually agree with you that Pharaoh, at least it's most likely, the best explanation is that Pharaoh can't do otherwise, and he is being held responsible. So I think I tend to agree with that point. Now I think that there is previous moments where he could have done otherwise, right? And that uh, 
you know, he, but he ended up hardening his heart and that sort of thing. So the big question is, you know, so what does that mean for the system overall? Because you seem to uh, see this as a as a counterexample um, to libertarian free will. Um, right. So I guess my question is this, you know, this, what is the problem for libertarian free will if in this instance, Pharaoh doesn't have alternative possibilities, right? Yeah. So, so it seems it seems to me that that um, and, and I and I I didn't bring this up in the opening, but um, I I agree with people like uh, like like um, uh, Tempe and others um, uh, who you know Peter Van Inweg and others who who are going to argue that incompatibilism, even those like William Lane Craig and others who are going to deny that some type of principal alternative possibility is necessary for incompatibilism. I'm going to agree with Van Inwagen and Tempe and, and, and these others who, who are going to say, well, well, no, push come to shove, the kernel, the, 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 the kind of gasoline in the engine is this leeway condition. There has to be some type of alternative possibility in order for us to be free, necessary for responsibility. So that, so that if, if you don't have that thing, right, the, the driving force of the, of the principle of incompatibility is that if something is determined, I just don't have that categorical ability it's just it's just impossible for me to do otherwise in any in any meaningful sense and so therefore i can't be free enough to be blameworthy right and so i'm going to look at a passage like this and say okay well it doesn't seem at any level that pharaoh that it, that it really was possible for pharaoh in any meaningful sense to do otherwise even even in the conditional sense i don't think pharaoh could have done it right so so you know it so i I, I think this gives an example that that God can determine, causally determine, strongly causally determine uh, something, uh, harden someone's heart to, to to cause them to 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 do something, or in this case, to not be able to not uh, be able to comply with the command, uh, to violate His own command. Right? I think this goes into you know, from my perspective, I would read this as a two wills uh, perspective, an incompatibilist, which which tend, you know, well, you're a historic I man, you might you might be okay with some kinds of some, not all, but some types of two wills. But, but in this, in this sense, it seems that you would have to say, well, he didn't, he didn't have the ability to do otherwise. And the thing that he never the ability to do otherwise was he, the only thing he could do was disobey the direct command that God gave him, um, which, which go undermines the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, what's, what's that axiom that the ability. Odd applies can. Odd applies can, right? So it, it seems to go against that. Right. And yet God clearly, I think, because he punishes him, right? And unless you want to say that the, the punishment wasn't due to the crime, um, he punishes him for, for that. Uh, and increasingly punishes him for increasing his 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 obligation uh, in violation of these commands. So so I think I think just in principle that violates the 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 principles of incompatibilism that would drive what it thinks is the control condition for responsibility. Okay, so I think perhaps we've reached a definitional equivocation on the term libertarian free will. Um, so let me see if I can lay out these two different views and then give me some feedback, uh, um, please. Or I'll, I'll put a question mark at the end. Um, so it sounds like you're saying that libertarian free will requires alternative possibilities at every point, not just, you know, sometimes, but always. And whereas, in my opinion, in, in my view, um, you need alternative possibilities sometimes, but you don't need them at every single instance, as long as you still have sourcehood. So am, am I summarizing your view accurately, that you view libertarian free will as requiring alternative possibilities at every single moment? No, so no, so I, I would say, and, and I would say that, that, that it needs it at the point where responsibility is accrued, right? At the point where someone, precisely where someone is responsible for their actions or the consequences of their actions, right? So that, that's why I gave the drunk driving example, because the drunk driving example is normally given in this regard, right? So, so even if I'm so inebriated drunk, I have no control over what I'm doing. I, I, I'm completely blackout, I'm unaware, but I, but I drive and I kill somebody, right? right? 
I'm still responsible because in the causal chain where my responsibility for the consequences happened, I was in a position where I could drink that much and, and choose a drive or, or, or whatever it was, right? So that there was a point where I did meet the threshold for control so that I'm responsible for it. So what do you make of Robert Kane's position where, he, I mean, he's a very famous libertarian philosopher, but he holds to this idea of will setting. And so he says that the drunk driving analogy is an analogy for a personality, right? So we have these um, important moments in, when we have character forming moments and we make choices, but they do form our character. And in that sense, we hurl ourselves like a, you know, like a, like a uh, drunk driver, that sort of thing. And we yeah. do set our um, um, personality such that we can't do otherwise um, without revisiting some, some top level assumptions. Do you disagree with Keynes analysis that uh, there's such a thing as will setting and you know, we can literally get set. No, no, I, because yeah, I mean, you could you could do that all under a conditional analysis and a reasons responsiveness and a guidance. Control. I mean, you could do you could do all the same things. Sure. The the, re, the reason why I pointed out for Pharaoh and and, th and this is why I said is because it, it seems that the narrative goes beyond that though, right? The, the narrative seems to say, and this is why I, I gave I gave the example of, uh, you know, let, let's of of running red light, right? And and then the government comes along and says, okay, you find out later, the government says, okay. We, because you ran the red light, we have we have this, uh, you know, brain control ray, right? I, I can't say magic because I don't think God works in magic. But we have the we have this brain control ray that causes you um, to sin more, right? That that causes you now that you've done this, we're going to judicial hard you to go and rob a liquor store, and we're going to hold you responsible for both those things, and you come to find out. The only reason you ran the light in the first place is because the government decided, that same government agency decided to put you there in that context, knowing that you would run the red light for the purpose of now you would be their guinea pig so they could try this judicial hardening so that they, they could, right? So, so it, 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 my, my question is, okay, the libertarian reading, in order for Pharaoh to seem blameworthy, would have to say that that type of thing, given incompatibilism, is a is a just uh, is a just way to hold people responsible. That 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 level of freedom is is valid to hold people responsible like that, right? That just seems to come out in the wash of of the conjunction of what's happening in the in the in, in the Pharaoh story with libertarian freedom uh, as the as the assumed reading. Yeah, so, I mean, my own view, and I need to put a question mark on this, but it would be that, you know, sourcehood is a necessary condition for responsibility. Um, so I guess that, that rules out, you know, causal determinants, but it doesn't uh, require alternative possibilities, but alternative possibilities is the condition necessary for free choice. So, you you know, there might be times where you just have sourcehood and you have a willingness and, and moral responsibility, but you yeah. If you don't have alternative possibilities, like in the case of Pharaoh being hardened, um, you're still responsible because of the sourcehood, because sourcehood attaches to responsibility. Now, the, I think the interesting thing is you um, you can't prize them apart unless you have alternative possibilities at some point. But if you have alternative possibilities at least one time, then you got a different concept, and then you can separate them out, and then you can see, okay, well, sourcehood is right. Anyways, I need to come to a, I need to put a question mark on that. No, I, 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 I think I know where you're going. With, without a question, I think I know where you're going. I can, and, and I respond to it, right? So, so my, sure. my first response would be, well, I think that without the leeway condition, right? Without, without some type of meaningful concept of principle of alternative possibilities, and I'm not the only one to say this, uh, again, I'm not the only one to say any of this. So I, I, I'm not a scholar. I'm not new and novel. I'm regurgitating lots of things that I read. So uh, is that sourcing compatibilism without the leeway condition, without the principle of alternative possibility, just is inconsistent source compatibilism, um, and and so you know, with, without going too far into that, I think that that's a viable response. The other response would be, well, I still come back to the question of, okay, but even if Pharaoh, right, e even if we grant the assumption that Pharaoh hardened his heart first, again, I see zero exegetical reason to think that. But let's just for the sake of argument, let's say that that's the case, right? 
does that still warrant as a as a means of of, of freedom as a necessary condition for responsibility does that still warrant god coming along right so so in one sense we can say okay in the drunk driving incident i had i had this principle of alternative possibility i remain the source and i'm blameworthy if i kill somebody right but it seems to me that that analysis kind of remains um passive right it remains neutral there, there's 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 no other um there's no other causal source adding you know compound it's not it's not that it's not that um right so so imagine you in the drunk driving one you drunk you, you just you're so dry now you were about to make it home safe but that same government let's change it that, that government agency decided that they in order to harden you for because you because you made the sinful decision to drive drunk or to drink that much they're now going to harden you so that you say screw going home i'm going to go and hit this person right that to me seems to mitigate your responsibility for the second part of that action if incompatibilism is true right because now if incompatibilism is true i now have not just my own decision as the causal determining factor of the consequences i now i'm back to having something outside of me prior to me causally determining my actions uh to create the to, to choose this evil thing right because because in Pharaoh's example it's not it's not just the outcomes were bad it's that he continued to choose to do something bad and it was by this outside causal action this outside cause of, uh, of god hardening him that he chose to continue to do this evil so the drunk driving one in order to make it analogous to pharaoh you'd have to have this i don't know big brother government agency coming along and saying okay well I, i'm gonna actually cause you to further do to choose to do this sin and it seems to me that the normal way that say the drunk driving shows the incompatibilist position breaks down when you do that well so i guess to to um well actually i i think um if it interfered with fair sourcehood i would would agree with you but you know in in essence pharaoh is the evil actor that's already set uh, set himself in that wrong path and god just kind of removes the obstacles or grace or that sort of thing but exegetical question here right um well, really 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 fast just before i lose that thought we'll come back to exegetical question really really fast and i and i know this is your cross-examination but but i'm just i'm just i'm just so curious Go for it. um because it, it seems it seems what you just said is that there is a case in which god can determine the actions and we're responsible right if i'm evil know. first god can determine me I, I i cannot do otherwise i can't yeah. I, I i i'm not able to do otherwise but god can determine me to choose evil and i'm evil god's not evil and i'm responsible it certainly is the case that we um well i i, I hold that we don't need alternative possibilities and that you know maybe and maybe in the hardened case that Pharaoh didn't have alternative possibilities, and that's probably the best explanation. I agree with that. That seems to be exactly what Romans nine nineteen says. Um, so I, I agree, but but is but, that an example of it's not it's not just it's just not not possibilities. It's now actually the conjunction of God determining something, ca causally determining Pharaoh to do something, and Pharaoh's response. But that just that just is the conjunction of something being determined in three, is it not? No, 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 no. So I, I, that that's why it's so important that it's a it's a subtraction of grace and disallowing Pharaoh's evil decisions to just um, have their sway because that that's what leaves the sourcehood in place. I think, and I think this this verse might help a lot, right? So uh, if you have Is this a, your you had ex, your exegetical question? Yeah, oh. yeah. Well, just real quick. So I think it's I think this is highly contrasted to your police example. I think actually sounded really close to an, uh, an entrapment case. But, but let's, let's look at this. So can you read, uh, if you have a Bible handy, can you read Exodus 3.19? All right, so Exodus 3, just 19? Yep. Okay. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. Right. Okay, so do you agree that the compulsion is probably referring to the 
the plagues that are going to come up where, you know, it's going to be, it's going to get pretty dramatic pretty soon, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I take it that this is a, this is an influence compulsion. This isn't a, God, God isn't going to, in the same way that God causally hardens his heart, I don't think God is going to cause him to let him go. I think he's going to just under, I mean, under, under influence compulsion, yeah. I mean, it's his own, it's, it, it's pretty close to Gundo at the head, right? I mean, you know, we're talking about killing kids and anyway. Okay. So, um, okay. So, and do you also agree that, uh, that God is saying that unless these very dramatic signs and plagues happen, that Pharaoh isn't going to let the, the children of Israel go? Yes. Okay. And so when Moses first comes and I mean, I, I'm sure he was acted in a very commanding voice, but he didn't, you know, didn't come with the plagues at first. He just says, um, "God says, let my people go." Um, that God already knew that Pharaoh's just going to say no, right? Yeah, yeah, because God, or because Pharaoh was an evil man, and didn't want to let the people go, right? And and um, do you agree? Of course, I mean, this is just a biblical narrative, but um, yeah. you know, doesn't Pharaoh respond? Well, who is God? You know, I don't know that guy, him and. You know, go make bricks without straw. Isn't that Pharaoh's response? Yeah. Who, who, who's, who's God? You know, essentially, the entire narrative is is actually a polemic between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, with Pharaoh being, you know, the 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 incarnation or the 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 high the high you know incarnation of of, of Ra as the sun god, the one who controls Maat throughout the land, right? So this is yeah. So this, this is this is this is basically one god saying, "Who the hell does your god think he is?" Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. I mean, uh, it looks like I have maybe 10 minutes left. So uh, I, I do need to shift gears because you have two other very strong arguments that I need to address. So let's let's hit inspiration really quickly. Okay, okay. So in your view, determinism is absolute, right? Everything is determined. So not just the writing right. of scripture, but the writing of every book ever, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So doesn't that indicate that the inspiration of scripture is not just a matter of determinism, but some special action of the holy spirit okay yeah yeah so so th this is this is why uh i mean this is actually a nuance that i think is important when you understand incompatibilism is that just because something is determined it doesn't mean that it's that it's that that, God, that this is this is why i think that it's uh, it's uncharitable when when people say like uh you know some some molinists say oh well edd just is causal determinism and i'm saying well no we actually can be rather agnostic about the the mechanisms of determinism. We can know that something is determined without actually thinking that it's causal determinism. So, so this is where I would say I think that Scripture is causally directly determined by God, whereas God can determine something in a more weak sense by 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 uh, providence, predestination, decree, all that kind of stuff. And in another sense, to come about by by all these other means. But yes. I think that God is directly and immediately causally determining the outcome of every single word and, and, and syntax, every jot and tittle of uh, the scripture so that every word in the scripture is God's word. So it's, I mean, it's kind of like double, double, like it's determined in the normal way. And then it's also determined in a very special, specific um, action of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Sure. In, 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 the, in the same way that we could say, you know, at least from within a reform perspective, we could say, well, uh, God, God has determined all things, right? But in one sense, we also say that God has predestined the elect, right? And in that sense, he he very actively bring. He is the means, right? He, right. So so in some cases, he just decrees the the, the means of, under natural providence and personality and all that kind of agency, all that kind of stuff. That just is the means. But it, but in some cases, God is the means by which something is brought about, right? So those those are two different types of um, so both are equally determined but they they are they the the means are different right so you know a stroke is equally as fatal as a gunshot wound to the head right but those are very two different very actions even if both are fully fatalistic in the fatal yeah. sense so why doesn't that parallel the situation for the molinist who says that you know, God is um, providentially arranging everything, right? Yep. Including the writing of scriptures. However, mm -hmm. there's in the in the writing of the scriptures, there's also a second special inspiration, special work of the Holy Spirit in that specific case. So I agree. So th this is actually where I say I think the if, if the Molinist says that, right, I think they're right. 
the problem, the reason why I bring this up is because that to me creates a problem for them, right? Because because their their system, the Molinist system, is built on libertarian incompatibilism, which just is that any if if some act is determined, it is necessarily not free. It is necessarily we are not the source or the agent of the action, right? That that just is pr the principle of incompatibilism, right? Which so if they're going to say well, well, libertarianism is a core defining tenet of Molinism, right? It just it just entails then that incompatible that 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 incompatibilist position that determinism is incompatible with freedom holds. But to your point, I'm happy that they affirm. I, I I'm overjoyed that we all agree on verbal plenary inspiration. We're we're all consistent Protestants on that. The, the 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 pushback that I have is okay, but the conjunction of those two things is inconsistent. Because if you have verbal plenary inspiration, like the time that, that I think that you and I agree on, um, then you have an example where something is determined and Paul is 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 praiseworthy for his theological and, and linguistic genius and it's rightly the case that he says in the first person i paul not the lord and god determined that and it's rightly god's word right for for those two things to be true that just seems to be an example of something that is determined and free necessary for paul to be praiseworthy but if that's the case incompatibilism is necessarily false because that's because incompatibilism is that principled position that there can be no instance of compatibility but inspiration just is an instance of compatibility okay so, right? so I, I, think I, I think i would push back in both directions so it's a so um why does it need to be determined to be verbal plenary inspiration if given that molinism can get to a word for word uh, without determinism, why do you need to add determinism to the mix to get well, uh, to it would have to get to a word? It would have to get to, well. So, so this is why I said that there's a there's a high price thing. You could deny verbal plenary inspiration to escape the trap. No, right? that, okay. What, what I'm saying is, Molinism would account for a word for word inspiration. How, but how, this is why I brought up Tolstoy's War and Peace. How would it, without going into causal determinism, how would it account? for verbal, how would it account for the verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture being God's word in a way without going to causal determinism that's different than God equally predestined uh, on a Molinistic scheme, every word, exactly the word in this actual world of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Because how God, are those two things different? Because God knows that if I inspire, let's say, Paul in this way, then Paul will write these words so what does it mean to inspire paul to write oh so i write I, this not the lord yeah so that that's an excellent question and and i i'm going to say that i'm not a hundred percent sure i agree with you that it's not that liberal sense of you know looking at a beautiful sunset um it could it could be something as simple as the holy spirit just bringing back memories um preserving from air i i don't know I, you know i don't think we know uh, but do you think that th this is where I'm just going to push back? And again, maybe this is getting too more of a dialogue. I'm, I don't mean to hijack your, your Q&A, but, but it seems to me, maybe, maybe I'll put it in the form of my answer. It seems to me that inspiration, in order, in order to hold verbal, verbal plenary inspiration, the inspiration of the, of the scripture by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit has to be causing Paul to write the specific words that are written. Otherwise, ver otherwise, it's not verbal plenary inspiration, right? But 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 the spirit has to be inspiring and causing in some way, right? Whatever, whether it's causative by addition, subtractive, with removal, whatever, the the it's it's the cause with the one and only outcome of the words specific that Paul is writing. Otherwise, if it's not that, then you can't say that every word, every syntactical construction of the original is attributable to the holy spirit and such that it's got every word is god's word um why not so if god if if the holy spirit says you know this is what i want the passage to say right and exactly word for word 
okay, so under what circumstances would Paul say that? Under these circumstances, if I influence him this way, and then he uh, providentially arranges for Paul to say it. I don't see the, you know, why it's yeah, all, not the all Holy Spirit's words. All of that influence and 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 providentially bring, that just is what we mean by determined. I mean that just is determined, right? So so I guess I guess I would push back and say what what is what is the 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 differentiating distinction between the Holy Spirit causing, inspiring, bringing about this specific word choice in Paul that isn't the spirit causally determining that word in Paul for Paul to choose to write that word. Um, okay. So that, I mean, I think that just comes down to the fundamental, what, what is the difference between free will and determinism, right? So it's, it's, it, it just comes down to, um, well, certainly it's different than causal determinism, right? Because God is using his knowledge to guide the situation rather than his power to um, determine the situation. So I think that's one key but difference. Isn't it but isn't the Holy Spirit, I, I just, I just fundamentally disagree because the Holy Spirit inspired, that's an expression of power. That's got, that's the Spirit acting. It is. Right? That's just not, that's not, that's not the Holy Spirit just sitting in heaven saying, I know what Paul will write. Right? It, it, it is, a, it is, it is a power thing. It's not, it's not a knowledge thing. I mean, it's knowledge too, but it is, it's expressly a power thing. So I 100% agree with you that the inspiration is God's action. That there's, there's no question about that. But it, it is it a causally determinative action? I think is the question. Or is it given this action and given God's and get, given God's knowledge of what Paul will do, given God's action, um, does God um, put His words onto the page? I guess that'd be. Um, but, then, but, but then I would go back and say, okay. <clears throat> but then, Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace. Is God's word because God knew if I put Leo Tolstoy in this certain circumstance, he would write this. Then that's the word that I'm actual. Okay, yeah, but I think the same would be true with you know undetermined because God determined the specific words that Leo Tolstoy wrote. Right, but but here but here's the difference, right? So on Molinism, just like on just like on us, the way we distinguish it, we say, well, the Spirit causes <laughs> the Scripture to come about. He's causing a very specific scripture. To, he's he's causing very specific words that he's determined to come about. The the he, you know the I, I he's determined that word, not some other word. Right? He, he, he's 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 causing that word. Right. So so it seems to me that the for the Molinists to avoid the the that that Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace is identical his word as as as, as the scriptures. You need the Holy Spirit to be causing the specific words that are written, such that. It is different than Leo Tolstoy, but my argument is once you do that, that's just that's just a distinction rather the difference to, to to compatibilism. That just is that just is something being determined by the Holy Spirit. He's he's causing the Holy Spirit is causing this thing to happen, not some other thing to happen, right? He's 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 determined what the outcome is going to be. He's causing that outcome, not some other outcome. That's just causal determinism, and yet. In order to to it, it, and yet I I don't think anyone's going to want to say that well Paul was just a you know a brainwashed flesh robot and so it just seems you know in verbal plenary inspiration we say well they 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 still wrote freely among their, their from their their own backgrounds and knowledge and personalities you know that's so, why you get very different grammar in John than in, than in Hebrews um, and and so we just we just say that this is something that the Holy Spirit has in, has has causally you know brought about is causally determined. And the authors are 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 praiseworthy for their literary and rhetorical and theological genius. And that's and and and, and Paul can meaningfully say truly and accurately first person statements, and yet those first person statements made by Paul from his sourcehood can equally be attributable to as God as his very words. So I'm um, I'm out of uh, uh, well actually I might have a minute left. So I'm going to ask one question. This is probably my last sure. question. Um, Okay, I mean, I disagree, but I've already stated, so I don't want to just repeat myself. But let me ask the other side. Okay. Let's let's say for the sake of argument that you're right, that this is a case of determinism, that inspiration is a case of determinism. Um, or maybe not determinism. That's probably best, not the best way to say it. But let's say that uh, Paul doesn't have alternative possibilities. But let's say he still maintains sourcehood, mm -hmm. but given the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he doesn't have alternative possibilities. Um, 
isn't this a very similar case to what we saw? It's like the opposite side of hardening, right? It's a good, <laughs> it's the hardening you want, not the hardening you don't want, right? So isn't it the case that, um, you know, that Paul could still be responsible because of he's maintaining sourcehood in, but he doesn't have alternative possibilities. He can't write different words given the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Yeah, so maybe maybe we can call it uh, as opposed to hardening, we can call it you know, firming up. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. There's you know, nice nice way to put. It. Yeah, but but to me, see, the, the reason why I you know I looked at Pharaoh, I looked at this one is because I think, well, those just run contrary to incompatibilism, right? I mean, I I think that so I think that compatibilism runs along sourcehood lines, right? Because you know I I, I hold to a kind of a you know a Fisherian or Fisher and Braviso type of view where I'm going to say, okay, well the way that something is brought about the secondary means that god uses that he determines just is via my agency and my source right that, that it, it's just it, it's determined through that right so so i have no problem saying that that paul is properly the source of the book of romans and that god determined it so i, I the, like so so i agree with you that our that in order for us to be free that some measure of our sourcehood has to be maintained. I'm, 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 a, I'm a kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm a kind of sourcehood compatibilist in that, in that regard. I'm okay with that. I just think that sourcehood is not incompatible in principle with determinism, because I, I don't think it, I don't think that that a principle of eternity is necessary at any point along the chain. Interesting. Okay. I mean, I, that that is my time. I love to just keep tracking that they have it. That is my time. So I'll, I'll uh, leave the cross-examination at that. And I appreciate the discussion. It's really good. Thank you. I appreciate it. Great questions. Really, 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 really good. Um, so we are going to end it here. So for, for those uh, who, who just finished this, if you haven't gone to Conversations in Calvinism and seen Dan's opening and, and my cross-examination, go do that right now right now right now uh or you know at some uh, at some point uh at some time uh, so today is uh the 21st i, I don't know when, we'll post this sometime over the next you know today or tomorrow or something um sometime in a, in about a week uh, depending on how we get you know sometimes these schedules are hard to arrange and we have multiple people getting it's hard for us to arrange just to get delayed like two months my bad that was my bad uh if uh it, when when it gets arranged from eli uh on uh revealed apologetics uh, that will uh, that will go live, and so please, as you're watching these, think of your questions that you'd like to to ask and and, and submit. I think Eli takes super chats, um, so if you if you uh, you need to start saving now, save your save your milk money for that um, to get your question asked. Um, but we will we will see you over over there. So uh, thank you very much, Dan. I, I really I really appreciate you. Um, I appreciate all your work, and I just I I, I I I think the world of you, and I appreciate this discussion. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate it as well. All right. Have a good night. God bless.